I think from an LP's perspective, it is actually quite difficult to understand what they get in this asset class. It's not a traded asset class. Um, it, it's not easy to get underneath the hood, if you like, of, of an investment manager and really understand what that is. I think you've got people that talk about being senior debt lenders, but they're actually investing in quite aggressive, highly levered structures, but presenting them as relatively conservative, senior debt bank-like replacement investments. And, and the reality is they're not. That was Adam Wheeler, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to season two of the show. We are back and ready to bring you more timely insights from Bearings Global Teams on asset classes like high yield, EM debt, private credit, real estate, and more. Don't forget to subscribe to Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that we're in your podcast feed every other week with the latest insights on global markets. My guests today are Ian Fowler and Adam Wheeler, co-heads of Bearings Global Private Finance Group. In the conversation, we talked about the evolution of private credit markets, how that's differed across geographies, whether or not we are in a bubble in this asset class, and what the next cycle could look like. With that, please enjoy the show. All right, Ian Fowler, Adam Wheeler, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Great to be here. Ian, uh, you're an old pro at this point. Uh, this will be your third episode on streaming income. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were talking about the podcast because when you use the term old, I thought you were referring <laughs> to something else. Right. But yes, this is my number three. All right. Well, Adam, if you're looking for tips, you're first time on the show. So just watch what Ian does and then just do the exact opposite and you should be totally fine. <laughs> I should be good then. <laughs> All right. Good. All right, Ian, let's start with you. I, I want to... Um, do things a little bit differently here. We've talked uh, on prior episodes just about the current state of the market, supply demand dynamics, a lot of what's going on today. But I wanted to just take the opportunity, uh, since we've got both of you here, to zoom out a little bit and just get a little bit of a longer term perspective on what's going on in this market, where we've been, where we are, and, and ultimately where we're going. Um, and I think you two are incredibly well-placed to to talk about that. So Ian, let's start with you. Rewind the clock for me and, and maybe just start even telling me about how you got into this industry in the first place, and then we'll and then we'll get into what the industry has looked like and how it's changed through time. You sure you want to wind that far back? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to be a professional hockey player, but I blew my knee out up in Canada. So this was the second best wow. option. Yeah. So uh, this is how I got here. Yeah, so I uh, started off in the, in the banking world uh, three, a little over three decades ago. It was a much different environment back then where really banks controlled uh, financing for, for middle market companies. So I was credit trained at Mellon Bank and then moved in as a, uh, a lender. From, from there, I moved on to Nations Bank, which was a little more interesting. And we were investing up and down the capital stack mm -hmm. of middle market companies. And, and so that really expanded the horizon for me, from just uh, senior debt to looking at the whole capital structure of, mm. of companies mm. and focused on smaller companies than, than Mellon Bank. From, uh, from Nations Bank, um, I moved up to actually back up to Canada, 
where I was uh, head of merchant banking for GE Capital. And that was really interesting because GE Capital really truly was operating as a, as a merchant bank. And so uh, focus on the middle market, but able to invest on a relative value wherever the best opportunity was in the mm-hmm. capital stack. Uh, both sponsored and non-sponsored deals. And, and I would say also prior to GE at uh, Nations Bank and at Mellon, it was all non-sponsor. So mm-hmm. really, the first half of my career was in the non-sponsor world, middle market lending, investing up and down the capital stack. Uh, from tr- Toronto at GE, I moved back down to Chicago and helped build GE Capital uh, build the uh, number one sponsor finance business in, in North America. We acquired Heller uh, and uh, was there uh, for about six years and then left to found my own firm uh, called Freeport Financial. We were uh, ranked in the top five uh, lead arrangers in the middle market. Actually, Mass Mutual was an investor in, hmm. uh, in Freeport. Freeport was sold to, to Molis. I spent a number of years thereafter at a private equity firm in St. Louis called Harbor Group, a uh, very well-established, very successful private equity firm. And that's when uh, Mass Mutual Bearings uh, came and said, we'd like you to, to uh, come back and uh, help us uh, build out the uh, senior debt business in North America. That's great. What, what year was that when you? 2012. Adam, so let's go to the other side of the world. And I'm interested, you know, if any professional sports or semi-professional sports broke your heart along the way. Uh, but, but tell us kind of a little bit about uh, your, your, your background in this business. So my story is nowhere near as interesting as, as Ed. I, ha- <laughs> I have no, no sporting broken hearts whatsoever. So I left uni and, and started working in a chartered accounting firm doing tax advisory work. And, and re- where was university? Was that? So in Sydney. So my accent is, is not from around here in Charlotte. So uh, I thought it could have been Chicago, but thanks for clarifying. <laughs> and you're not saying tax work isn't exciting? Yeah, I worked out pretty quickly after about 18 months. I think being a tax advisor was not for me. And then I left and also joined a merchant bank in Rothschild & Sons in Sydney. And I started working in what they called their their corporate banking group, but doing a whole range of things from, you know, aircraft leasing, um, uh, mining, financing, um, uh, leverage buyouts, uh, you know, non-sponsored and sponsored work. Mm-hmm. Worked there for a couple of years, went and joined uh, Rabobank in Sydney um, in their leverage finance team, spent a couple of years there and then moved into um, funds management where I joined AMP Capital. And that was a, uh, a mezzanine subordinated debt uh, business. So I worked there for five years, focusing on really two things, um, a mezzanine in, in leverage buyouts and mm-hmm. also subordinated debt um, in infrastructure-related um, assets. That was a, a global mandate. So, mm-hmm. so we invested mm-hmm. in Australia, Asia, um, Europe, and in the US, and then joined uh, Bearings uh, just over 10 years ago. Um, so a colleague and I joined from AMP to set up what was then a mezzanine investing activities in, in Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're and, based out of Sydney. And we were based that. in yeah. Sydney originally, and then we set an office up in Hong Kong. Um, and then about four and a half years ago, I moved I moved to London um, to manage our uh, European and Asia Pacific 
um, debt platform, which mm. had morphed by that stage into a into a, a, a direct lending business that you see today, which mm-hmm. invests up mm-hmm. and down the capital structure. But yeah. Yeah. I'd say more of the focus today is on the on the senior space as opposed to the the junior space. So with the, thanks for the background, both of you. Um, let's talk about what's changed, uh, and and it's probably harder in some degree to, to talk about what stayed the same in this market. But maybe Ian, talk to us about some of the the biggest changes that you've seen uh, in the middle market lending space over the past decade. In North America, over the last 20 years, non-banks have dominated financing in our space. But what's changed is uh, the type of uh, platform. So uh, pre-crisis, it was really uh, FinCos, finance companies. So think of insurance companies, GE Capital, Hiller Bank, uh, that that type of uh, platform. And and since the crisis, you've you've had a proliferation of forty, fifty different managers, asset mm-hmm. managers, none of them having balance sheets mm-hmm. uh, in the middle market space. So we went from balance sheet lending mm-hmm. to asset management lending, mm-hmm. and and so that ties into the the second change, which was historically uh, most of the asset management investments in our space was junior capital. And so what's changed since the, since the crisis, everyone's searching for yield. And so more and more institutional investors discovered senior debt as an attractive investment opportunity, risk return profile for their uh, portfolios. And that allowed uh, in really asset managers to form to provide that type of investment mm, opportunity mm. for investors. Adam, what, how about from uh, the perspective of outside the states here? Whether you're looking at developed Asia, Europe, w- what kind of change have you seen there over that time period? Uh, significant change. So, I mean, you know, pre-crisis, the basically the senior space was a banking market. There, there were no funds or any other alternative lenders providing a senior debt solution. Um, All asset managers were focused on the junior part of the capital stack. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I did, started doing 15 years ago, was mezzanine investing. Um, And the only alternative lenders you would see in Europe were guys doing mez, as we were. Uh, And I think it was coming out of the crisis when when banks were – how can I put it? Out of capital, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in a polite sense, uh, they uh, that that a lot of the uh, established mezzanine lenders um, started to provide unitranche lending in mm-hmm. in Europe, which replaced the bank and the mezzanine piece. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how the European market started to change. You saw banks banks have got regulated out of the space. It's quite difficult for them to to hold the amount of debt that they did in a single transaction pre-crisis. Um, and now you're seeing um, fund managers providing that solution in scale. Um, so I think it's been driven by by regulation um, and also a significant interest from the underlying LP base and, and pension funds um, chasing yield, um, looking to deploy into uh, floating rate instruments um, yeah, particularly as the interest rate cycle has just continued, um, well, it, in Europe it's negative interest rates, sure, so you sure. can't invest in in investment grade and actually earn a positive return. <laughs> so, so people have moved down into the sub investment grade space, and that's, I think, also generated a lot of flow for the asset class. Would you say that Europe is still uh, pretty much a bank dominated market? And same question for Asia, I guess, as well. 
Asia is definitely a banking market. Um, liquidity for banks in Asia is is um, there's still plenty of liquidity f- available from banks in developed Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, Taiwanese, Korean, Japanese banks have a lot of liquidity and are, are trying to pl- find places to park their cash, um, and I think have driven down um, yields yeah. in APAC for. Um, performing bank credit, yep. um, the type of things that, that we've traditionally invested in in the senior space. I think in Europe, um, it's moving down the path towards the, the where the US is, but is a long way behind the development of the US market. So uh, the middle market, as you know, we define it as you know, 10 to 50 million of EBITDA, mm-hmm. um, I would say is about half bank, half non-bank. Mm. Um, that has changed significantly in the last five years. It's probably come down from 65% bank. It will continue to, the banks will continue to decline as a part of the market. Mm-hmm. My, my take is they'll probably bottom out at, at 25 to 30% of the total market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I say that is um, Europe is a collection of small markets. Each of those small markets um, has dominant regional banks and, and they want to all play a part in the leverage finance markets in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're certainly not going to, I don't think, going to regain share, but I don't think they're going to disappear to the extent they have here in the US. Sure, sure. The most demand I see from private equity firms is actually less levered, more bank-like, but with some flexibility around around those funding structures. And that is, that. that's where the least amount of capital has been raised by non-bank lenders. So I think that will will change over time. And I think that's probably a good thing. It's just it's just the market will mature. And I think it's really good for, for LPs because I, I think they'll get more conservative options to invest into, not just guys who are looking to shoot the lights out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about a through the cycle, you know, play on investing in in subordinated credit where it's a liquid. This has been a space that has just seen um, so much investor interest since the global financial crisis. And, and as we've talked about, I think a lot of that probably comes from this search for yield. But, you know, you know, I guess as, as you look at all the capital that's come into the space, as you look at um, the new entrants that have come into the space, right? If you look back in your own career, it lasts over 10, 15, 20 years. Um, I can imagine there's, there's a lot of new uh, names out there that you're seeing. Um, are you worried about that? So I and I and I guess from an asset class perspective. So if you you know step outside of your role here at Bearings for a second and just think about it more as kind of a, a leader in the industry, are you worried about all this competition, all this capital? Um, you know, does this mean we're in, in a bubble, or what? What what does it mean? Well, I mean, look, I, I sure I definitely worry about. Um, some of the competitive behaviors out there because I, I see certain things out there. And I think ultimately when we go through a cycle that will reflect on all of us in the industry. And so what I wouldn't say is that we're necessarily in a bubble. I'd say it's, it's fully valued. Mm-hmm. It's very competitive and discipline is, is critical in this market. And I think it's important to note because you you reference the the change over time, the asset class itself has expanded and gotten uh, larger. So, and I think both horizontally and vertically, I would say that you know the definition of middle market five to fifty is probably more five to one hundred and fifty million in EBITDA. So I think the market has increased, the number of players has increased, the amount of capital has increased. 
it is definitely fully valued. It's definitely competitive. Uh, but I wouldn't say, you know, we're like in the irrational behavior kind of mode right now. We've just seen this massive structural trend uh, away from publicly listed securities with capital coming more and more into private markets. And obviously, um, your asset class is a is a financing mechanism for transactions that are happening in the private equity market. So do you think that that structurally uh, supports the asset class over the long term? Well, it depends. And that's a great question because... You know, I think you can look historically at private equity as an asset class, and you would say the median enterprise value of companies in that asset class has been around seven times. And that has inflated to 10, 11 times, software businesses 20 times. Mm -hmm. So you see a huge expansion in terms of uh, that asset class being like really fully priced. And so on a relative value basis, I can t take a step back and say traditional senior debt is in the four to four and a half times range, which isn't too different than it was last cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, this is where it gets into structure because, you know, we have definitely seen so much capital. Uh, raised in the unitronch sector where spreads have compressed and that paper has gone deeper in the capital structure where you know you're not really getting paid for that embedded junior capital risk so you know i guess you have to look at it from a relative value standpoint and so as i take a step back and i look at a capital stack of a company i see the equity being like really expensive and so you kind of wonder how this vintage will do mm -hmm right, as we go through a cycle, and then you kind of start moving up the capital stack and probably the, the, the junior capital's next on that list, right? And then to me, the senior is the one that really hasn't changed more than anything else. Today, uh, for senior debt, our loan-to-value is about 50%. Uh, in the last cycle, it was about 70%. So from a loan-to-value perspective, yeah, you know, we're in a much better spot today with some cushion. Yeah, that 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 growth of Unitronch has, has obviously been a theme. We've seen more and more headlines about that. We've seen, uh, you know, bigger and bigger uh, transactions. We've started to see direct lenders uh, at the top end of that market uh, starting to compete with what you would have traditionally seen as broadly syndicated loans. So I want to talk about that, but. Adam, tell me about, uh, just to follow up on Ian's point there, um, Unitronch, uh, what are the sort of competitive dynamics in Europe? I mean, is it as competitive as a, a situation? See, I, I think the market structure in Europe is a little different to, to the US. So the US, I think, is it's a significantly bigger market, probably four to five times the market in Europe. Uh, but it is a far more mature and a far more efficient market. Mm. And because it, it, it's basically dominated by non-bank lenders, whereas we go back to our earl the earlier part of our discussion, half of the, the funding comes from banks, the other half from non-banks. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, the banks do all the vanilla financing that's done in Europe. So the stuff that Ian refers to is really done by banks in, in Europe. Um, and what you see from most non-bank lenders in Europe is they are focused on on the unitranche end of mm -hmm, the market mm -hmm. and have gone out, I think, raising capital from from their investors, promising quite high returns. So, so you've seen some aggressive behavior at that end of the market to be able to win and, and deploy capital. Um, the other interesting dynamic in, in Europe is that it is – 
a bilateral market. So there's one provider of the financing solution. So you see people competing very hard in a sort of winner-takes-all mm. situation. As opposed to what? A what a clubby yeah, type okay. market that yeah. you see in the US where you've got, you know, four to six people or whatever doing doing the providing the funding. So I think that drives different behaviours. And so while I think that there has been a significant amount of capital raised in Europe, I think there are pockets of the market that are less less competitive uh, more of the sort of banky replacement where you can write checks in scale so mm-hmm, above mm-hmm. 100 million euros um, and, and I haven't seen much spread compression in that space in the last couple of years but I think at the the more aggressive end of the spectrum to sort of echo what Ian said at that unitrach end of the market you have seen some spread compression mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. over the last couple of years probably 50 to 75 basis points at least at, at that end of the market. Adam, tell me about uh, quality of earnings. It's, it's something that we've seen a lot of headlines about, uh, questions around adjustments being made to EBITDA and whether or not it's truly representative of cash profits. Is that something that you're concerned about today? Oh, absolutely. I think you know the key for us when we're looking at a, a transaction is what is the real leverage that we're applying to a business? And, and there's a lot of tension around um, the definition of EBITDA, uh, are you using a forward-looking number? Um, what sort of run rate adjustments, what sort of pro formering goes into that number? Um, so th- there's that. I also think that there's a lot of tension in in covenant calculations um, and also in the legal docs. Mm-hmm. So I think that competitive tension is, is certainly driving some more aggressive behaviours from, from lenders. And I guess, you know, Ian, if you think about uh, if you start to look forward and you think about what the next cycle could look like, right? So I know you talked about on our Outlook podcast recently that we've been saying we're in the seventh inning of this credit cycle probably for three years now, right? So it's been a, quite the seventh inning we've had here. I, I think we've changed it to cricket. So I think we're day three. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. That's that's much more global. Um, listen, you've, you've got a lot of experience in this industry as we've already talked about. So take a step back for me and think about with all the risks you see out there, with all the different dynamics in the market, if you were to predict, and I know you also said on our last podcast that giving predictions gives you hives, but if you were to predict what the next cycle uh, could look like, um, what could it look like? Where where do you think the areas of stress will really show themselves? Well, I want to pick up on where Adam left off because I think that is going to have a significant impact on on what we see. And and that is these adjustments to EBITDA really translates into companies being more levered than we think, and that these adjustments are not actually converting to cash. And since they don't convert to cash and you're going to have a cash shortfall, that's going to lead to a liquidity crisis. And with the documentation being degraded in terms of the structural protection, that's going to mean that historically tighter documents would give you a heads up that, hey, we've got a problem that might not you know, rear its ugly head for six months, mm-hmm. so we have time to avoid it. Yep. Now what's going to happen is you're not going to get that warning, and so you're going to go right into a full-fledged liquidity crisis. And I, and I think that's going to be the, the challenge is that you will have companies that run out of cash and, you know, 
someone's going to have to bring in the cash pretty quickly because you got to pay a vendor, you got to pay payroll. And, and I think that's going to be the issue that we're going to see in this market different from other markets. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think companies are going to run out of cash before they breach a covenant. Mm. Um, so from a lender's perspective, it's going to be uh, with the looser documents that you see quite difficult to act while there is equity value sitting behind us. Um, I think that is quite diff- quite different this time around. Um, so I think things will be fine until they're not, and then it's going to crater. Right. I mean, I mean, for a particular credit. Sure. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to be able to act quickly and have some experience around being able to manage those situations and form a view very quickly about whether it's a business you want to support and take ownership of, basically, yeah, yeah. And, and try and try and manage out of a really difficult situation. You won't be able to um, jam down the equity um, in a business that's still positive cash flow as you could maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm, with stronger mm-hmm. documents. So how do you get ahead of that today to the extent you Well, can. I think we're just still trying to be disciplined around around what we look for in the companies that we lend to, the characteristics, the credit characteristics um, mm-hmm. of those underlying credits and trying to maintain discipline around, around the loan docs, mm-hmm. being relatively conservative in the capital structures that we put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're focusing on doing. Um, it's trying to stick to what we've done you know, we very much coming from a mezzanine background. It, it's all about trying to invest through a cycle with consistent cash flows, and we still look for that in the senior space and trying to ensure we have the ability to act well as equity value in a business on a reasonable assumption around the enterprise value of that business. So, you know, to Ian's point about where multiples are to value businesses super inflated. Mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. you can just buy into uh, being able to sell a business anywhere near that multiple in a downturn or in a distress situation. And I would add that um, in addition to what Adam said in terms of the discipline and, and you know picking the, the right spots, it's also about portfolio construction. And uh, you know one thing we're really focused on is just diversification and making sure that yeah. we can diversify the portfolio as much as possible so that you know if you, if you do have a couple issues, you know it doesn't impact the overall performance. So does all this kind of add up to you basically being more willing to take senior debt risk at this point in the cycle and less willing to take uh, risk lower down in the capital structure? Oh, for sure. And I would say three years ago, we probably were, you know, if I looked at the North American platform, we were probably 25% or so junior capital, 75% first lien, and we're probably over 90% first lien right now. Let's talk about the the end game for or the long term steady state, I guess, for this asset class, right? So, um, we've seen the lines continue to gray with broadly syndicated loans. Um, what what's your call here? Does does the tide ultimately go out on this asset class, and we see investors kind of decreasing allocations over time, or does it become more and more ingrained as a core allocation for investors? I think one study I was looking at recently um, was showing that basically. Institutional investors are still, you know, pretty materially underallocated to private credit relative to some other, you know, quote unquote alternative investments like venture capital or buyouts or even real estate. So, what's what's the kind of long term game look like here for private credit? Well, first of all, for someone that's been doing this for thirty years, I don't believe there's an end for this asset class. I mean, this asset class is a critical part of the U.S. growth engine. Uh, it is resilient. I've seen it through multiple cycles. Yes, every cycle is different, 
but the middle market is is core to the U.S. economy, and it's large, and it's differentiated, and uh, there's a large op- opportunity set here for investors. I, I think where you're going is it is a relatively new part of institutional investors' allocation to their portfolio, and you know, like any cycle, I think there will be some investors that um, are comfortable with the asset class for the cycle, and there will probably be some that aren't comfortable. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe mm-hmm, they didn't mm-hmm. allocate it correctly in their portfolio. But if you look at the, you know, the value of this asset class, what it brings to investors, the the risk return profile. Mass Mutual is an investor that's been in this asset class for over 50 years and, and has seen it through multiple cycles. I think as other institutional investors see and experience this asset class, they'll, they'll be consistent investors like Mass Mutual. Mm-hmm. Anything you would add to that, Adam? Uh, yeah, I agree. I think for a lot of particularly sort of European pension funds, mm-hmm. it is a relatively new asset class. And I think when we talk to, to LPs, Often it's a new allocation or they've only made a very small number of allocations to private credit. And I'm only seeing a trend in, in one direction from almost everyone we talk to about those allocations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think uh, I actually think the, the asset class will continue to grow uh, because people in this interest rate environment are, are looking to try and generate some sort of yield for sure. their portfolio. And I don't think that that environment is going to change anytime soon. Talking to somebody who's looking at this asset class today, thinking about you know making an allocation or thinking about managing a current allocation, what would be you know one or two pieces of advice that you'd leave them with here today? I always emphasize to investors that it's not just underwriting the asset class, but it's underwriting the sustainability of the platform, the sustainability to withstand a cycle, to have the resources. These are middle market loans. They're gonna they're gonna bump around through a cycle. They're gonna take a lot of time to manage. You have to have the resources on hand to manage that portfolio. And there will be some platforms out there that have gone out and originated a lot of loans, but they don't have the resources to manage those loans through a through a mm-hmm, cycle. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, when it comes to Debt, the return doesn't occur until you get the money back. It's easy to put the money out, but getting the money back is 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 actually the most important thing. And so I, I, I just I just think that you have to understand the, the the risks of that platform and the ability of that platform to survive. Adam? Mm. I, I completely agree with that. The, the other thing I'd add is, I think from an LP's perspective, it is actually quite difficult to understand what they get in this asset class. It's not a traded asset class. Um, it, it's not easy to get underneath the hood, if you like, of, of an investment manager and really understand what that is. I think in public markets, it, it's much, much easier. Mm-hmm. So you've got people talking about um, having good origination platforms, 
having a conservative, you know, defensive investment philosophy. Sure, sure. And I think every manager pitches themselves in a very right. similar way. All the marketing pitch books look the exactly. same. Exactly. Right? But I think people implement that strategy quite differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very much the case in Europe. We've got people that talk about being senior debt lenders, but they're actually investing in quite aggressive, highly levered structures, okay. but presenting them as relatively conservative, senior debt, mm-hmm. bank-like replacement hmm. investments. And and the reality is they're not. From an investor's perspective, they really need to understand that the the investment philosophy of that manager and whether they're implementing that philosophy in a way that's consistent with the way they represent it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and from a distance, sometimes there's there looks like there's a bit of a mismatch between what's represented and the way it's implemented. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point. Investors need to do their homework and really need to understand what their managers are actually doing. So underwrite the platform, underwrite the consistency of the investment philosophy. Well said. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I really appreciate uh, both of you joining me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've learned a few things myself, and uh, and I uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for having pleasure. us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the first episode of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including our next one where I'll dive deep with Bearing's David Nagel to find out where he and the team are seeing value across fixed income markets today. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.